Welcome to Words from the Wise, episode four with Jim Flaherty. This was truly one of my favorite conversations. Jim had so much information to share. We talk about making good decisions, changing jobs in your mid-40s. I shouldn't even say changing jobs, changing totally different career paths and how it's done and the decision-making around it, how to take action when you're truly unhappy with something. Uh, You have to take chances. You can't just keep taking the safe route. There is so much information in this episode. I was so excited to record it. I'm so excited to keep listening to it. Um, I absolutely loved everything that had to do with this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further wait, please enjoy the episode with Jim. Thanks. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited for this conversation. We've had a lot of communication um, before this, and uh, I'm just really looking forward to, to sitting down with you for you know, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it takes. So, so Jim, what, what I would love just to kind of start, cause I, I always love starting with context. So can you transport, can you transport us back to maybe like your twenties, thirties, or even younger, just kind of wherever you want to start from of where you were at, what, what you were doing, um, and just kind of what you wanted from life at that point in time. Okay, interesting question for me. I, uh, I was not a super hip, old for my age kid. I, looking back, I was a good kid. I think most of us were of that generation. Now, we'll get into that generational difference. I have children and grandchildren. You're the middle, medium age of my grandson. Okay. Um, I'm grew up and I was born and raised in Coral Gables, Florida. Now a super kind of rich, beautiful suburb of Miami. Then it was just a nice little suburb of Miami with maybe 30,000 people. Okay. Uh, a few Latinos, rich Puerto Rican family in those days. And my father was like district attorney of the city of Miami. That was a big deal and I, when lawyers were really liked and, and respected. And I think he earned maybe $25,000 or $27,000 a year. Wow. <laughs> lawyers didn't make money then. <laughs> I was the DA's son, which I thought was kind of neat. <laughs> but I wasn't um, hip. I wasn't super successful in high school other than the fact that I was in the band and I had the best journalistic job in the high school. I wrote a, a secret column so I could kind of pimp everybody, <laughs> which was a wonderful role to play. So it was like an anonymous column? When I was, when I was 14 years old. I went to the hospital one Sunday, died the next Sunday, and life was very different. We had $1,000 in the bank. We owned our home, which they had bought for $9,000 <laughs> when I was eight years old. And somehow, we got through it all. I had a terrific mother. I really can remember her in only positive terms. She was great fun and she suffered. She lost her lover, her best friend. <laughs> yeah. And a few years, uh, six months later, a, a psychiatrist friend said, you know, get off your ass, Mary, and get a job. You've got a kid. <laughs> and went back to work for $50 a week as a nurse. Uh, and built a young doctor's practice. And three years after my father died, she remarried to a wonderful man who had no money, 
but a great education. I called him Little Pop. He came up to my shoulder <laughs> and a half in the, my young days. Now I've shrunk to six one. You know, I'm old. I will be eighty five in eleven days from now. Eighty five years young. Eighty five. Eighty five going on sixty five. There you go. I like it. Absolutely. So I went to University of Florida, a state school because I couldn't afford anything else, and then transferred with a, <laughs> people laughed, you said, with what? With a scholarship as a concert bassoonist. <laughs> wow. I, I played bassoon, didn't take any music courses. I went to Michigan State University because they were only one of two schools in America offering a degree in communications. Now you can get a degree in communication from every roadside chapel and garage, you know, but back then, I was 1955, and I graduated from MSU in 1957 and came to New York during a recession. It was always a recession when I came to New York, <laughs> knowing nothing. I was not a wildly sophisticated 21-year-old. No, I know that. And I was full of no regrets, full of doubts about who the hell was I and did I have any ability. Uh, but what I did have, and I didn't realize at the time what a blessing it was, and it stayed with me my entire life, is that I, honest to God, woke up every morning, and if I didn't say it out loud, I said it to myself, wow, I've got another chance to go to work, to go to church, go to work, and do something new, or be terrific, and maybe somebody will notice that I'm really worthwhile, and also, and I didn't know that what a good habit that was. Now I have uh, a mentor of my daughter that said, if you arrive someplace on time, you're late. <laughs> so instead of being to the office at nine o'clock, I was there at 7.30 in the morning. And then in later years, mind you, I was taking home $200 a month after taxes. That was I had, and I had no money from home, and I was living in New York City. So was I poor? You bet your ass. <laughs> Did I suffer? No, I didn't suffer. I was too busy living and loving the fact that I could work and do something and maybe learn, something, maybe be better than somebody else. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I look back on those years as very interesting. But in later years when I was earning more than $100,000 a year and commuting from uh, Larchmont, New York, a nice town in Westchester where we raised our, our children. I still, the latest I ever sat down at my desk was 7.45 in the morning. I would take an early train so that I could get there and have time to think about the day, to do some writing. I was a writer, creative director of advertising agencies. That was my career. And um, I loved it. And unlike uh, the, uh, lead character on Mad Men, uh, who was a creative director. And everybody said, oh, Jim, it's you on television. I said, no, I did not chain smoke. I didn't, in my office, no chain, no chain smoking, no chain drinking and chain, you know what else they were doing? Not in my office. <laughs> Mine said, Jim, they were doing it in a lot of other offices, not in yours. That was where you were supposed to come up with new ideas and create something and get your work done, get your job done, you know? And I loved it. So 
Um, those were the very early years, and they they were good years. You know, I uh, it's good. I don't think advertising agencies or clients would really love me as creative director right now because I wouldn't approve at least 50% of the work that goes out of the agency. And in those days, creative director was creative director. Nothing went out unless I signed it and said, that's fine, that's good enough to be on the air. And I sold over the years, different agencies. Uh, Ding Dong Avon Lady opened her in 15 countries. Uh, Smirnoff Vodka, British Airways in the era of the Concorde flying back and forth. Um, I, I don't know. It was all it was all good and interesting, and I tried to make it worthwhile and uh, not boring. So those early years. What's next? I love that. It, you know, you, you and I don't know each other that well, but I'm actually a director at a marketing agency. So. Yeah. Good yeah. Time. So we could, we could go, I mean, obviously I could go down that road for so long with you, but that's not what this podcast is about. Um, so we'll have okay. to table that discussion for another day. Um, Terrific. but yeah, it is, it, I would have, I have so many questions just because Mad Men was so appealing to me, um, to kind of transport you back to what advertising used to be like. And I, I felt it was amazing to watch, but again, that's a conversation for a totally different day. Um, but no, that's really, that's really interesting. So I have a lot of questions based on kind of a lot of stuff that you just said. Um, so one thing that's been a, a, a reoccurring theme on this podcast, the very short live that it's been around is waking up with intention, with waking up with like the spirit that you're, that this day is yours, that you need to make it yours. Um, and that's, I've heard that before. You, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of very great podcasts, but um, it's different when you hear about it, when you hear it from people that you're talking to. And so I want to hear kind of, did, was that natural for you? Did you have to like work on that? How did you come to the realization that you had to wake up in the morning with so much ferocity to take on the day? I'm going to I'm going to actually credit a lot of that uh, to my late great mother. Yeah. <laughs> Since uh, I was an only child, um, and as I said, I was a good kid and helpful, and my mother had to support me, and I wasn't competing with siblings, and she wasn't competing with cell phones, nor nor did I have to. Thank God, I would not have liked my children to be talking to them with a cell phone in their hand. Uh, I was raised very, my mother was a great strong believer in the golden rule. The golden rule showed up, in, uh, Confucius actually said, almost said the exact words of the golden rule back in the year of, when I made a note, because I was so amazed by it, in the year of, of 551 BC, he summed up his teaching as, quote, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. You know, and the golden rule that we were, that we heard as kids was, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, which you lay that on a four-year-old and they go, huh? What? You know, it's the language, the idea is wonderful, but the language was awkward. So I rewrote it. Uh, years ago for myself and my children, five words, you get what you give. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's my guide to life. And I can remember my mother saying, uh, darling, uh, nobody's going to give you anything for life. Nothing, nothing free. Life is not, uh, you don't open the door and somebody's going to be there with a basket full of goodies for you. If you want something, get off your ass and work for it. Mm. Do, do something. And I said, but I apparently believed it. <laughs> and, and again, it goes back to that when I was suddenly out on my own, thought, God, isn't it terrific to be able to get up and to go to work? What if I, what if I didn't have that? If I didn't have, it was to me a joy and it was still a joy to me when I was doing it. We'll get into later on when I went into a completely different career uh, at, in my mid forties. I mean, shooting craps with my life. Um, I also laugh, another thing mother (laughs) taught me, she was really a good mother, a good dame and very funny. She said, you know, you can look at your bathroom mirror every morning and say, good God, another day. (laughs) Or, good God, another day. (laughs) You know, and I, I really try to do that. I try to, to every day say, wow, I've got another opportunity. Of course, at my age, you know, you also can I tell myself a joke. You know, I wake up and say, ah, which side of the grass am I on? You know, okay, fine. I, you know, uh, my daughters say, are you kidding? You're in, you think you're invincible. You know, you'll never die. And I said, of course I won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you better be doing your job too, you know, cut you out of the will. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that it's something it's been built into me and it it really has been the saving this thing you ask about of what gives you the need to get going and that that saved my life i think i'm sure it saved me from uh being an alcoholic or screwing around too much or doing things because you couldn't do that and really do it and live up to it if you weren't focused on what you're doing. You know, I mean, I found early on being in advertising, people say, oh, let's go out and have drinks at lunch. Even one glass of wine, I couldn't go back and face the keyboard. Mm-hmm. In later years, at age 80, I found myself drinking too much. <laughs> Sorry, I stopped. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I stopped smoking 50, 58 years ago when my younger daughter was born. That day I stopped. That was the year before I was cancer. <laughs> mm. oh. uh, so, okay, next. Yeah, no, um, I love that you approached it with, you just, you couldn't get everything, you couldn't, like that That intention is what saved your life, it, it is what, you know, kind of catapulted you um, throughout your whole career. So um, one thing that I think a lot of people struggle with is it's easy for somebody to, to sit back and say, well, it's easy to wake up every day excited when you love what you do. So was there ever a point where you didn't love what you did and were still able to do that? And if so, how? Hmm. 
because most of us, a lot of people hate their work. And, and I think that's yeah, where, and, and it's hard to get out of that mental mindset of, of being like always disappointed with yourself because you don't like what you're doing, but it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. That, that would be dreadful. And I've, I've told people, you know, I've said, I don't really care what you've decided to do with your life. If you're good a waiter or you really want to work on roofs or install gutters, fine, you know, try to be the best you can at it. Mm. You know, and, and by trying to be the best, the job won't be boring to you. I can bring, I, I don't think I ever to the point of, I said, saying to myself, I hate this job. I can remember saying, I'm not happy with this work environment. I'm not happy with the upper management of the company. You know, and then and you say, well, fine, dumb, dumb. What do you want to do about it? Mm -hmm. say to somebody and push them out of the way um, you've got to make a decision so I would uh, make a decision I would change jobs if necessary um, and that was all right I, I don't think that I don't think that uh, hurt me <laughs> having a change but no I never never was at the point of saying it, it's all over midlife crisis. Oh God, what am I going to do? What have I done with my life? No, no, no. I thought things are moving along. I, you know, I, um, I was amazed at time, times I, I'd look around and say, Jesus, God, I'm sitting in the corner office. <laughs> I'm earning $150,000 a year. You know? And I never took that for granted to say, well, of course I should be because I'm tall and charming and I smile well. No, screw that. <laughs> I was there because I did my job. Nobody had to worry about, I wonder if Flaherty's worth the money. You know, and nor was I being paid phenomenal. I wasn't, I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't, you know, there wasn't anybody giving me a million dollars to be on air. It was just go to work, do your job, solve the problem, have clients that said, eh, he makes money for us. <laughs> when I left um, the agency, um, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. One of the things I always wanted to do secretly, don't know why to this day, why I wanted to do it. Maybe because I knew other people and I envied them. I always wanted to live abroad for a while, to, uh, to work abroad, to, to, to all that. And much to my amazement, <laughs> in the middle of when life was at its finest in, New, in our New York life, we were living in Westchester and kids were nine and 11. And uh, my wife was having an art show of her own and everything was doing fine. Um, somebody said, Jim, do me a favor. Will you go on an interview? Because I, I don't, I can't have any, I don't have anybody uh, qualified. So I went to an interview and J. Walter Thompson, at then the biggest agency in the world, uh, said, we, we would like you to, they had many interviews with me and said, like you to 
take a job as creative director of our office in Buenos Aires, Argentina. <laughs> I said, I'm not sure I like Latinos. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll fly you down for a long weekend so you can meet the office and meet the school principal where the kids would go to school and look at real estate and then come back and no strings. Tom Sutton was the head of international and Englishman and I just adored him. Kind, kind of looked like Mussolini. <laughs> Brilliant and wonderful. So I went down and I uh, came back after three or four days in Argentina, a 12 hour flight and said, I surrender Tom, I'll take it. So I moved wife, two daughters and the furnishings of a nine room house, 6,500 miles to live in the Argentine. And it was the year that Perón came back with his uh, kind of whorish wife, Isabelita. Vital had long died and named her vice and the Argentine re-elected him as president. I thought, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was uh, circus time, but it was very, very interesting. Uh, I'm sorry, I got off the subject. We were, where were we? Yeah, no, you're saying, what do you do when you're unhappy with something? Mm -hmm. Action. You, I am going to jump ahead. You don't always, as long as it's not immoral or illegal or indecent, don't always take the safe route. You know, um, shoot cracks with your life. You only, have, you only get through it once. You know, so you're taking chances. Argentina with the champ. People said, how do you do that, Jim? You're taking yourself out of the market at age 36. You're going to disappear for four years. It didn't hurt me at all. And I, and I besides not hurting my career, it certainly uh, didn't hurt my attitude. I came home a much better American appreciating American values and what we stand for. It was very, you know, interesting time. Okay. Yeah. So, um, on that, you know, I, I can really appreciate that. So I took, um, you know, uh, I took a short hiatus and lived in Mexico for a little bit and Good. where, uh, Puerto Vallarta. Okay. Um, I know well. yeah. So when I came back, I, appreciated the u.s so much for everything you had and you know i think you know like you took the trip i think everybody should live abroad somewhere that's not like a thriving first world country um just to experience what what 99 percent of the population in in the world deals with on a daily basis that we just don't have to that's right yeah, it's really an eye-opening experience no, very, very much so. And speaking of Puerto Vallarta, we said part of crap shooting. Now, then over the years, um, uh, my partner and I, my wife and I, after 15 years, which I'm sad to say, called it in, uh, called it quits. I went on taking care of her for the next uh, 25 to 30 years <laughs> um, and educating the daughters. And I'm still extremely close to both daughters. Uh, but I had a home in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, mm. a mountaintop home. And then after that was blown away twice by hurricanes, which I grew up with in South Florida, they're old, old hat to me. Uh, I said, let's give earthquakes, let's give earthquakes a chance. And we moved to Acapulco. Oh, okay. 
I've lived in Acapulco for 26 years. Wow. And have, and I've just, just now have sold a villa there that um, if I could move it to, oh, Darien, Connecticut on Long Island Sound, I can't tell you how much money I would get for it. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would be a crying shame, but it would be about 20, 20 times more than what I'm getting for it, selling it. Yeah. Doesn't matter. I had. Oh, sorry, your audio broke. I did? Oh, now you're back. I, I got you now. Back? Okay, yeah, it was really uh, very wonderful. And, and I'm, I'm a great believer that if you can't live abroad, if you get the chance, that I know everybody doesn't get the chance. I got the chance only because we earned the money to do it, to travel. I mean, you can't, you can't see London or Paris, Rome or Venice en enough. You know, I've done that and I've, I've walked the Great Wall of China and the rambling Barcelona and gone salmon fishing in Alaska and gone around the, the, the end of South America into Antarctica, Antarctica and I don't know, I've, I've watched much monks in Myanmar, it was called Burma back then, uh, collect food from the humblest homes and it's the world and it, it's a very very interesting world to look at and to touch and to feel I, you know I, I remember dodging bicycles in Copenhagen because uh, there are more bicycles than cars there in that beautiful city also got a lesson there um, my partner's family are all Danes and I went out with eight of them for dinner, and one of them said, yeah, Jim, I know that there are people talking about socialism in the United States. He said, let me tell you about socialism. He said, I'm Danish, I love it, I'm, I live here. He said, most young people here will never own a home because with socialism, if you earn the equivalent, let's say of $80,000 American a year, you give, 58 cents of every dollar to the government. Mm. They were paying 25% sales tax on everything they bought. And I, Jesus God, I don't want to live in socialism. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I, you know, I, mean, I realize the economy changes uh, and the world, the world economics change and the need for money. I, you know, but I, the whole idea of, of gas, I remember when we had a gas shortage, it was right after we opened our, the second business we haven't talked about, my other career, um, there was a big gas crisis in America. People were lined up for a mile to get gas. Mm -hmm. And it was, it went up to like four or $5 a gallon. It was a killer. Now we're paying $2.20 a gallon, something like that. Which, it's acceptable, it's not cheap, <laughs> but it's acceptable. And yeah, I, was, I remember. Remember that when it got down to like those, the you know, a dollar for a little bit. You know, what was that? Oh, probably yeah. two thousand, early mid two thousands, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe even before that. Maybe in the, it was the late nineties. I think the late nineties. Yeah. <laughs> um. So to touch on uh your all this travel. So what do you think? 
or what do you feel you've been able to really learn or take away from all these experiences and all these travels? Like, how has it changed you? I think always part of it is that thing we touched on earlier. It uh, makes me glad that I was born in this strange, complex country, a big giant, I call it a big giant corporation called the United States of America. Because just by virtue of being born here, I had opportunities. Because remember, I was not born with family money. There was no money. I worked every year in college. I had scholarships every year. Somehow we got through, you know, and it was, that I, and I didn't suffer from it at all. You know, I didn't, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not amused by, but I'm amazed when I read of these uh, kids that right now were in, in the news this morning, on TV news this morning, they found uh, some of the new protesters came from very wealthy, wealthy homes you know, multi-million dollar families and the children were out there not protesting, which is fine. I'm a great believer in the right to peaceful protesting, but out there in violent protests. And I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> it, it's, I'm not very, that, maybe that's part of being the age I am. I'm not patient anymore. I've, I've lost much of my patience. Yeah. With the stupidity. But traveling <laughs> to meet other people at other lands, um, to see how they live, to see how they cope with their life, to see the, the joy they had in their life, whether it was simple or whether it was a life of giving service. Um, I, I found quite interesting, quite moving. It's uh, even more so when you live in a country. I mean, I have lived in Mexico so long and uh, at home we speak, we still speak Spanglish at home. We have a, a full-time uh, woman who's lived with us for 18 years. <laughs> so it's, you know, Pongo uh, Mesa and I'll bring the chairs and don't sell the dogs because <laughs> it doesn't matter what we speak. We all speak it and live it. And I've, I've lived with Mexicans at all levels at all socioeconomic levels. Mm -hmm. And I, and I loved them. I was mm -hmm. very nice to them. And I, and, and I also ran into some that were completely, uh, not because of money, just by their nature, stupid and immoral and illegal. And, and I could absolutely, <laughs> would cheerfully run them over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too funny. So you've mentioned, uh, a couple times about playing craps with your life, um, you know, taking chances. And then you, you've mentioned this transition around your forties from one thing to another. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, so take us through that. What, what okay. happened? Okay. Um, one day for living in New York, uh, we owned a brownstone. I had figured out oh, a good decision back then, considering I really didn't think of myself as being a financial planner. I uh, had figured out, I told my, my partner, who had never lived in New York City, said, I think 
the only way to live in New York and have a decreasing cost of living would be to own a brownstone with a number of apartments in it. So we bought an eight apartment brownstone and had a, a we had a three bedroom garden duplex. Cause I had kids coming to me on the weekends and even had a, a little backyard <laughs> in, in New York and I could walk to work. That was very important to me. I loved mm. to work cause I went to work early wherever I was in New York and I, uh, I love New York City early in the morning. Um, and one weekend I went away when, to visit my art director and his wife in, I think they lived in Hudson, New York. They had a little country house. And I came back to New York and said, we need a house in the country. <laughs> we need to make the weekends better. I can do the 60 hours plus in New York City with all the New York madness. But then on the weekends, it'll be quiet and peaceful and wonderful, etc. So we went up and we bought a barn full of hay and cow caca in Sharon, Connecticut. And I found out that my partner was really quite brilliant and he turned the barn into a magnificent home. Mm -hmm. We were in the reservoir and it had, it had a, a staff house attached to the barn, which he converted that first and we put in a pool and life was wonderful. I would have stayed there the rest of my life. Um, he decided he wanted to start a restaurant, which also surprised me. I said, fine. And we presented that to Sharon, to the Sharon Connecticut board. And they said, you'll sell drugs. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> what kind of restaurants did they go to? Probably the only old, old guy you know who's never smoked a joint. We are completely the non-drug people of all times. Hmm. Who worked for me always knew I said, if you do drugs, you're fired. I don't care if you're the sole support of five people. You're out of my life. Totally. I'm still kind of violently anti-drug. Um, so the town turned down the restaurant. And so we, we were still very happy with that. And, and friends, a French couple uh, had come up and were living with us on the weekends, whom we liked very much, friends, Regine and Francois. And... Um, one day, I, I was talking to somebody, and I, they said, Jim, why don't you buy Troutbeck and turn that into a restaurant? And I said, good idea. What's a Troutbeck? So they drove me six minutes away into Amenia, New York. We still call it amnesia or anemia, but it's Amenia, New York. And there was a, an abandoned, 35 years empty stack of stone, an English country house, boarded up. Uh, raccoon droppings in it. I think there was a live raccoon on the third floor. Um, no ground, no gardens, no heat, plumbing, electric, gas, no glass in the windows, nothing. And I said, gosh, isn't that beautiful? We didn't have houses like that in Coral Gables, Florida. <laughs> One of those idiot things. I, um, I called a partner. He said, I'm not interested in the meaning. I said, come look. I knew him. He was looking at the the row of 1835 sycamores in front of the property and the beautiful land around them. And he said, how much land is available? I said, 25 acres or 50 acres or 400 <laughs> acres. He said, let's buy the whole thing and we'll start a private residential community. I said, okay, I mean, we're making the decision that fast. And he said, what are you going to do with the house? I said, well, a restaurant wouldn't be enough to run it. Let me think about it for a day. I said, 
okay, we'll make it an executive retreat and country owned. Now, mind you, I didn't know dip about that business. Not my business. We did, we bought it. He spent a year bringing it back to life. I was still working in New York. We opened. I went on working in New York for a couple of years. We needed money to pay salaries. <laughs> I mean, we didn't exist. The town didn't exist. The town was 2,600 people. And other than a, a pizza parlor, nobody even knew it existed. It was a place on the road. So we had to kind of create the town and then create the business. And we owned it for 34 years. <laughs> and after the first few years, I left New York advertising when I was getting into a salary. I was offered, I won't say who I was working for, but they were offering me like 250000 to. And this run. was probably in what, the 60s or 70s? Yeah, this would, no, this would have been 80, 1981, Okay. Okay. And because uh, I was in Argentina in 1971 to 75, right? So uh, I did it and I, I was the innkeeper and ran it and I, and I really went after corporate business. So many of America's biggest corporations came and Henry Kissinger was there a lot and the CEOs of Citibank and of American Express and they were all there. I got to know them all and we actually had a successful business. And you've never worked until you've had hospitality. And that we, from 12 bedrooms when we opened, over the time we ended up with 42 bedrooms. People, and we're giving them three meals a day, meeting space. I was married 276 times. <laughs> I could plan a wedding for 200 people in 40 minutes, but I'd let the mother of the bride spend six weeks doing it. It was okay. Fine. We had a successful business. And I worked minimum 70 hours a week mm. minimum. so um thank you jesus uh, four years ago we sold it uh, about four and a half years ago four years yeah sold the whole business sold the whole thing oh. then last year sold the, the residential community mm. <laughs> which we also had been part of and had lived in and and i'm still on the board of that <laughs> But um, you know, it, that was crap shooting. And everybody said, you know, Jim, you're out, you're out of your, no, you are absolutely out of your mind. I said, well, eh, the, the kids are out of college right now, or Kelly was still in graduate school. I said, eh, we'll get through, we'll, we'll do it. You know, I said, like, you know, you play the cards you're dealt, <laughs> you know, and, I thought, and this will be interesting. I mean, it's a challenge every day. And I was there at seven o'clock every morning for 25 years. I was there at 7 a.m. every day, dressed with a tie on. I refused to dress like, well, it's the country, so I'm going to wear flannel shirts. That's bullshit. <laughs> Don't do that, you know. So, and, it, and guess what? It worked. And we met wonderful people, magical people. It was the kind of place that attracted great people. And many of them stayed. We built homes for them and they lived there forever. And the others have just become friends that have stayed friends for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, so 
uh, that was crap shooting, I think. Mm-hmm. So how would you, do you remember the feeling of making that decision? I mean, most people, cause, cause I think most people going from making $250,000 in the eighties, which is probably half a million dollars today, um, to then saying, I'm going to take this giant risk and leave my career. They would just retract and they would just, they, they wouldn't be able to take that leap forward. Do you remember what the thought process, like, was it just a moment where you just knew it was the right thing for you? How did you do it? God, Elliot, I, I wish I could say it was, you know, a bright light shone. <laughs> but, oh, thank you, God. No. I, I don't know. I just looked at it and thought, wouldn't that be interesting? Not that I was bored doing what I was doing. I wasn't. I, I really loved doing what I was doing. And uh, I just thought, it's, maybe it's good to have a change. It makes you <laughs> change your point of view and not, another new reason to get out of bed in the morning with that feeling of, wow, good, another day to, and going out, think it's, hard enough to go out being a creative director of an advertising agency, but you're dealing with a lot of people with psychological problems, the account executives in their suits and the clients, some of which I, one of my favorite lines, they would pick up a line to rewrite copy and I'd slap their hand and say, you know, John, you couldn't write an interesting suicide note. <laughs> so, Thank you. They, they also, it was so nice having you as a creator. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm trying to protect you from embarrassing yourself. So, uh, but to go out every day and know that you're facing not just your employees, who, and we had, I'm happy to say, employees stayed with us 10, 20, 30 years. I was a good employer. People liked to, that one, they knew I worked harder than they did. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do. And if we were short, I was there doing, you know, oh, the bartender didn't show up for a wedding. So I was there being the bartender for a hundred people. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Big deal. You know, it's, it's what you do or, or helping in housekeeping. I still to this day get up every morning. I have, mind you, I have a full-time nanny living in, right? A woman who's there to take care of us. I get up every morning. First thing I do, I roll out of bed and turn around and make my bed. There you go. Everyone should read, everyone listening to us should read, uh, I think his name, Admiral McClellan. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book and he gave a speech called Make Your Bed. Everyone should read it. It's yep. good advice. I was doing it before his speech. <laughs> doing that for, I don't know, 50, 60 years. But um, you're going and you're, going out every day to greet people who are living in your home and you're giving them three meals a day and you want to know, did they sleep well? Have they solved their problems? They came there for the weekend for either for sexual purposes, uh, for emotional purposes, trying to save their marriage, trying just to get away from the madness of the city. Is it serving all of their needs? You know, you became the, the group psychiatrist, psychologist of everybody, you know, and, and I, would, I would laugh. And I've stayed very close friends with many of them and said, you know, Jim, will you marry us? I said, all three of us? I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> I'll marry you. Stay. 
and, and we stayed on. And uh, it it was uh, very exciting. No, it wasn't. I can't remember the moment. I just remember saying one. I I was blessed by having um, a remarkable partner who had every talent in the world that I didn't mm-hmm. think, and vice versa. So when he said, "Oh," why don't we buy all of it and I'll build a private residential community <laughs> and I, I'll restore this. I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm the, I'm the blue perfect, you know, Jim, can we, what do we, what do we have to do to change that light bulb up there? I said, well, bring two people in a ladder and I'll hold onto the bulb and you can get the two people to turn the ladder. <laughs> I don't do anything. I type well, you know, that, that's the end of my technical abilities. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, and so, so you had mentioned now you have a novel, a couple novels. So, mm-hmm. did you? So now, now we'll we'll see if um, there's an aha moment here where you went from like, how did you decide to write a novel? I mean, where did that well, come from? Well, I think I always maybe way in the back of my mind, back where they stick that COVID test. At, mm, that one. Oh, oh ouch. <laughs> um, I think I probably always wanted to write a novel. Remember, I am, a, I am a writer. I earn my living at the keyboard. By the way, I'm gonna go back a quickie story. I was 14 years old, it was the year my father died. And in the high school in Coral Gables, I was a freshman in high school, they were offering, you could have a choice of a couple of optional courses, and one was typing. And I was telling my father about it, the district attorney, and he said, good, Jimmy, take typing. And I said, oh, daddy, only girls take typing, you know, so they can become secretaries. And he said, mind you, this is 1949, 1949. Jimmy, the world will be run by keyboards. Mm. Now, so I I took it was best thing I ever took probably, and I carried my sixty pound Royal typewriter all through college. <laughs> um, but then I did earn my living my entire life. I've earned a living at the keyboard as a writer. So when in doubt, I will I will write to myself and say. Uh, write and turn things off here that I can't talk to you. So uh, I will write and uh, get put down the problems on, on paper and possible solutions. And it helps me. I know always, and I guess writing a book when I no longer had to work 70 hours a week, I thought, you, well, you can't just not have a reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> you, this could develop into some really bad habits. And I, I like routine and I like some kind of discipline. So start writing. And so we go to Acapulco for two or three months. And I would, again, there's a place where you could spend your whole day uh, drinking tequila and sitting in the sunshine. And I thought, no, I'm going to start writing. So I started writing a couple novels. One I wrote totally, read it and said, that is really complete doo-doo and nothing and put it away for three or four years and then rewrote it. And it's not bad. <laughs> wrote another one that I, that I liked better. 
and I, and I self-published them. Who am I? I'm not a famous writer that they're going to publish right away. Now I'm writing this thing, Dear Old Friends, which I think is uh, worth worthwhile and marketable. I'm in an enviable position, Elliot. I don't have to write to put uh, food on the table, mm -hmm. you know, which is very good for a creative person. Mm -hmm. uh, while we're talking about being creative, do you mind if I jerk, jump around now? Everywhere. I, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I'm not the first person to say it, God knows. To write, what you really must do is read. You've got to read everything and anything you can, and then you will, you've got to determine in your own head what is brilliant and what is absolute garbage. And that will help you then be your own editor and look at it and say, my, how you really are stupid. You know, you should resign yourself to write grocery lists rather than trying to write something for people. And, and everybody should... Find some authors you like. I mean, I found in fiction to write, to read Pat Conroy, uh, his, his books were wonderful. And now I'm reading Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, and she's best known by her fifth book, which was kind of a memoir and became very popular in a movie. Uh, uh, Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. She has wonderful books, and uh, I'm reading, rereading right now, one she calls Big Magic, which is about creative thinking and a creative idea and what you do with it and what you do as a person, as a, as a creative person. It's really good. It's very important. So Big Magic. I've never heard of that, but I, it yeah, seems read, like something I would love. It's really worthwhile. Woman, it, it's a lot, it just as much as it's worthwhile to watch Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. I have Smarter than men, by the way. <laughs> What's that? What was that? Sorry. I happen to think women are smarter than men. One hundred percent. They're yeah, they're I, absolutely I, smarter than men. Yeah, always. Yeah, uh, Renee's fantastic. I absolutely love her. Oh, extraordinary! Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So one thing that you had mentioned at the very very beginning, and it's always something that I want to dig into a little bit, is yes, um, regret. So you had mentioned that you didn't have any regrets early on in your life. Um, is there anything that you still think about today that you wish you would have done differently, whether you can call it regret or you can call it, you know, whatever you want to call it, but is there still stuff that weighs on your mind that you wish you would have done differently early on in your life? I don't know. I'm not sure about, about doing things differently. There are always, I look back and I think, gee, could I have been, could I have been a better son? Could I have been a better husband? I was sorry about uh, having a divorce, even though I knew it was not going to work uh, long run. But I then lived up to my obligation and made sure she was okay and took care of her. Could I be a better father? You know, I don't think there's a man alive who can say, I've been a perfect father. Nobody can be. You can't. You just can't do it. You can't go off and earn a living and take care of your family and be everything that your children expect you to be. In fact, I don't think, I, I think it's very hard to be perfect at anything. But I think you can work toward that. Um, I, I, 
I know that it sounds, I think it sounds arrogant for me to say I don't really have many regrets. I, I'm, um, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed my life. You know, it's, what was, I didn't, it's not my saying. I've, I've lived, a, I've lived a, a long life. So far, so good. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Um, I do believe, you know, that the band won't stop playing until you stop dancing. <laughs> you know, I, I do believe that you go, you go on, you're, you're doing things. I, I, I find it hard to believe that I am 85, that I might not wake up tomorrow. I don't expect to do that. I, by the way, I get up every morning after making my bed and go down to our pool and exercise for 30 minutes. Nice. I mean, serious exercise, uh -huh. you know, because I, and I still weigh what I weighed at the end of basic training in the army. <laughs> I like what you said about uh, perfection in the, in the sense of, could I, could I be better or could I be, could I have been the perfect husband or the perfect father? Um, but also just, could you have been better? Cause I think just striving for better is really important. And you know, something I tell everybody that I hire is I don't expect you to be perfect. I expect you to strive for perfection because it's just aiming for that target will get you 95% of the way there. That's right. Yeah. And like you said, you know, maybe if we just look at all of the, the different facets of our life of what, how could I be a perfect husband? you're going to be a pretty damn good husband at the end of the day. Yeah, really. Yeah. To, to make an effort and, you know, and to remember all, all the, without sounding too hallmarkish, to remember the, the importance of, of saying to people, whether it's nice to say to your wife, to your mate, to your children, I love you. Mm -hmm. I mean it, but also to your friends. I mean, I think having friends is, Jesus, God, I feel so sorry. I really feel sorry for people. And I know a number of them who don't have friends. They don't have anybody around them. Women are better than men about that. As they get older, they create a circle. Men are too full of moi, and they lose touch with reaching out and saying, come to me. You know, I mean, I, and I try to remind people, you get what you give. You know, then maybe it won't be so bad. I, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and, and that whole, that whole conversation of, uh, you know, no friends and just, you know, loneliness in general. I mean, that's all, it's a, it's a whole conversation in itself, um, you know, especially with, you know, now all the remote work, um, all the conversations basically oh. taking place on social media. I mean, when you combine everything that's happening right now, uh, you know, people it's are changed really the world. Lost. Oh, absolutely. it's really changed the world incredibly. But, but one, one quickie, John Gardner, who is a brilliant, brilliant writer, way, way back, writer, a diplomat, a philosopher, everything, wrote, he, he said he, that he had read something about barnacles that a barnacle, that sea creature, has to make an existential decision about his life of where, which rock is he going to attach his head to, and that's where he's going to stay his entire life. And I, I think a lot of people do that. A lot of people have become barnacles in their life. And God, the world was wonderful. 
it's wonderful even in Armenia, New York, or wherever in the hell you are. It's okay. It really is. <laughs> I absolutely love that. The world is wonderful. Um, and you, I, I love, you know, because obviously people are just going to be listening to this if they can't necessarily see it. But I love how much joy is on your face when you talk about how wonderful life in the world is. Um, it is. And I hope everybody gets to appreciate life it in that It is. Way. And I think, you know... I, I, I'm not going to push religion as a good Catholic boy that I'm not. I sing in the choir of a Presbyterian church <laughs> to listen to a brilliant minister every Sunday. Yeah. The church online now, by the way. <laughs> you got to stay safe, socially distanced. Yeah. Um, so I have one last question that I end every podcast on. Um, True. And it's given what you know today, what message would you have for your younger self? For my younger self? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I think maybe to really understand the full meaning of that golden rule of you get what you give, to, but to, to totally understand it, that to put out to give a helping hand and a sympathetic ear and a loving heart, knowing that you will get that back rather than being demanding and critical and depressive and ugly, which will come back and bite you in the ass. Mm -hmm. I don't know how totally I understood it. I don't think I, don't think I was too bad as a young guy. I, I don't remember all of that. Remember, I'm old for Christ's sake. <laughs> you got a pretty good mind on you. <laughs> No, I love that. I think it's a great rule to live by. Um, you know, and there's a lot of people that will talk that there's no better feeling than just giving and giving oh, all the time. That's right. Yeah. Well, Jim, I loved having this conversation with you. Um, you're a tremendous spirit. I can't believe you're 85. I can only hope. I can't I'm, either. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope I have half of your energy and your spirit. Um, when I approach that age. Um, you will. Been. You will. Absolutely. I love I it. In the 60s were my, the top of my game. <laughs> it's never too late. I remember there's some famous author. I really, his name slips my mind right now, but he didn't, he, he's on like book seven now, but he didn't yeah. write a single book till he was 63, 65. That's um, right. Yeah. I can't remember. It, it's a more of a business writer, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's, it's never too late to do anything. Good. So, Jim, you. absolutely I tremendous. It. I appreciate the opportunity. Love it. I hope to stay in touch. Thanks, Jim. Adios, friend. Bye.